0: This week on the Lectures in History podcast, The History of the Woodworking Industry in Early 20th Century South Carolina. University of South Carolina professor Jessica Alfenbein and former museum executive director Lynn Robertson co-teach this course. Stay tuned more after this. This episode is brought to you by
1: Visit Williamsburg.
2: It is a pleasure to be here today with the Honors College students in the University of South Carolina's uh, 421 course, What the South Made, Exhibiting South Carolina's Industrial Past. I want to start with a quote. This quote comes from a very prominent American historian, a guy named Ed Ayers, who wrote, while the coal mines and textile mills have become a visible and memorable part of Southern history, the South's largest industry has remained virtually ignored. Lumbering is often written off as of little consequence and little dramatic interest. Yet lumbering, more often than any other industry, captures the full scope of economic change in the New South, its limitations as well as its impact. And we're about, I don't know, a third of the way through the semester, and I think you guys are already kind of convinced of this. But I thought it might be interesting to share with you a little bit more about how we got to this place. So. About five or six years ago, the National Park Service reached out to USC's Department of History and asked us to help them by writing something called a Historic Resource Survey for the park. So Congaree National Park is one of the youngest parks in the National Park Service. Um, It had become a monument in 1976 during the bicentennial year, and it only became a park early in the 21st century. It really is one of the very newest parks. So the goal of this historic resource survey is to tell the human history of the park and its environs. How have people interacted with the natural world? And we did that. we did that in a, um, about seven or eight chapters. We talked about the importance of transportation, and we talked um, we talked about a lot of different topics. but the chapter on extractive industries, particularly lumber, was one that raised many, 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 many questions um, about the role of lumber wood products and forest conservation in South Carolina. So probably helpful to talk a little bit about the broad outline of South Carolina's story post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction. And I think the way I would describe it is perfect storm. Perfect storm. Now, you're not looking at any images of storms. You're looking at images of really beautiful yellow pine and really beautiful old-growth cypress. But the perfect storm was this. There, of course, was lots of old-growth hardwood and yellow pine in the south, but prior to the end of reconstruction, both because of technological limitations and the way labor was deployed, this was not the highest priority of the folks who owned the land on which the uh, timber grew. But at the same time that there was sort of a rediscovery of all of this timber, the upper Midwest and New England managed to get themselves clear-cut by lumbermen who weren't particularly concerned with permanence, right? So then those folks were very interested in what the South had to offer. Lumbermen from those places were hungry for new timber and land in South Carolina, like other places in the South, was also devalued. Its value was something like 125th of what it had been pre-Civil War. So what happens? Well, big lumber comes. I don't really like featuring. um, I mean, these guys are our friends, but um, it's the arrival of big lumber. You guys know that lumber factors came from places like Michigan, and they did this very, I mean, to us in 2023, sort of cool thing of buying up. They amalgamated small tracts of land into big tracts of land, and then using parlance from 2023, they flipped the land which in turn they sold to to really big lumbermen like these guys here. So Benjamin Franklin Ferguson and Francis Francis Beidler, they were um, really big lumbermen from Chicago. And they came down kind of lured by stories of these big tracks full of cypress and and, uh, yellow pine and other great trees. And um, they bought up gigantic tracts of land, not little tracts of land, but gigantic tracts of land. They were especially captivated by Cyprus. Okay, so they come, these guys come, Franklin and Ferguson, they, uh, I mean, F- Ferguson and Beidler came together in the late 1880s with some other partners. It wasn't just the two of them, it was a little gang. They came down by rail- railroad. They explored uh, areas around the Congaree, the Santee, and the Watery Rivers, and they were very taken by what they saw. And they decided that they would start buying up the land In time, these guys came to control something like 200,000 acres. This one company, only in South Carolina, came to control something like 200,000 acres, um, most of which they owned and some of which they only owned the timber rights to. But in any case, they controlled the timber growing on something like 315 square miles. That is a lot of land, a lot of land. And so they built... On the the banks of the Santee River, they built a company town and corporate headquarters for their business. Their business was called the Santee River Cypress Lumber Company, and they built it for permanence. They expected to stay for a very long time. This was not a cut-and-run operation. They had so much land that they really thought that they would stay a long time, and they started out only by cutting old-growth Cypress. They left everything else, and they built this... This um, pretty sophisticated, pretty expensive, pretty highly capitalized company town. Um, It had a company store, so that's a picture of some script script that was used in the store. But it also had lumber mills and hotels and company housing and hospitals and schools and artesian wells and all kinds of other things for the health and safety of workers. Um, But it was a segregated place. It was not a perfect place. And despite the fact that these guys wanted to be there for the long haul, the company really only operated for about a quarter century. They, they operated from about 1890 to about 1916. And at the peak in Ferguson, um, the company and the town and everybody who was in that place was there only because of the company. It had not been a town previously. So <clears throat> at its peak, there were about 2,500 people who lived and worked in Ferguson. And they manufactured. They didn't just cut timber. They also manufactured a whole bunch of wood products there. Um, before cardboard, they did the boxes, which were called shooks. They did lots of <clears throat> roof shingles and balustrades and other architectural fe- uh, features. And then World War I came, and this company shuts down. So the question became, what happened to their land? And some of their land, and again, they controlled like 200,000 acres of land. Some of their land was leased to hunt clubs. That preserved the timber. Other land, On other land, the timber rights were sold um, for various wood products. Barrels became a big user of the trees. Furniture became a big user of the trees. And it turns out that Sumter, South Carolina, had a very special and peculiar role in all this, which we're not going to talk much about, but for for all of us, Sumter had great ambition in post-reconstruction, in the post-reconstruction South. It really thought it was going to be something very, very special. And it turns out to become the center of the wood products industry in South Carolina, which was no small thing. It was a major, major industry. And the industry the timber industry today continues to be a major industry in our state. So um, I'm going to turn over the mic to Graham Duncan, who uh, oversees the manuscript collection at Caroliniana Library, a world-class special collections library that um, has been very, very helpful in getting processed the papers of the Williams Furniture Corporation, which is one of the sort of beneficiaries of the land that had been assembled, um, at least indirectly, by people like uh, Francis Beidler and Benjamin Franklin Ferguson and all the workers who were there. And I would be remiss if I didn't start, stop by saying that what Williams Furniture built was really quite unusual for the American South. We will talk more about it in a few minutes, but it was a major, 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 major employer, and it had an interracial workforce and a unionized workforce And this is in Sumter, South Carolina, and that's really interesting. But there's a very good set of reasons why almost nobody knows the story. And the story of the archives will help us to better understand. So Graham.
3: All right. Thanks, Jessica. Uh like Dr. Elfenbein said, my name is Graham Duncan. I'm the head of collections at the South Caroliniana Library. Um, so just briefly, so the South Caroliniana Library, as she mentioned, was is one of the um, special collections units here at the University of South Carolina. We particularly collect um, archival research material about the state of South Carolina and its inhabitants, documenting its history, geography, culture. So those sorts of things consist of um, manuscript materials, which might be Personal papers, organizational records, right? Like the like these types of materials, um, business records, that sort of thing. We also have a published materials collection, so books, um, newspapers, magazines, things you would expect, maps, um, and then a large visual materials collection. So that includes both photographs and old photographs, photographic processes, um, postcards, and um, fine art, that sort of thing. So the South Caroliniana building, you can see up here, um, through most of its history, has has kind of engaged its research audience in a very kind of traditional manner, right? We are a special collections library, so we're closed stack, non-circulating, which means, right, you can't, like, just go into the stacks like you could in Thomas Cooper Library, look up and down the shelves, pick out the book you want, check it out, and go home, right? So so you must tell us what you want to see. We pull it for you. You come sit and the quite gorgeous reading room, and um, and use it. And, and that's a plug, we're reopening our building on October 6th, so everybody come um, check out the building. It's been, none of you were here when it closed for for renovation, so um, that's exciting. Um, so yeah, so we, we engaged folks in a very kind of traditional manner, right? You let us know what you want, you come here, you look at the materials. Um, kind of the work we do behind this with collections is you know, in, in some ways it's a very kind of tedious set of things. We take very large amounts of material, we organize it in a way that makes sense for researchers who look at a finding aid and say, This is the folder of material I want to see, um, putting kind of a hierarchical arrangement on there. Um what made this project really interesting? Of course, this is not a collection that was that is held by the South Carolina Animal Library. But one of the great things about this project is we um, we were able to kind of lend some expertise in in helping Stevie, who you'll see in a minute. Um, do some of the physical arrangement of the material, make a finding aid, make a list, a box list, so people know what to request when they want to use this. But the large kind of part of this this project was digitization of of a lot of of the materials. I don't think it, it's going to encompass the entire collection, but. Um, So digitization, of course, you know, makes things available online. So we take these physical records that are only available in the library in between, you know, 8.30 and 5 o'clock under our supervision and we make them freely available online. Um, It's a lot of work. The scanning is one part of it right, scanning all of the materials, but Stevie will talk, I think, a lot about metadata creation, which is a lot of work compared to just the scanning. So it's not just as simple as taking all these boxes and scanning them, running them through an olive all of and putting them online. Um, but the amount of labor kind of required in, in projects like this is worth it, right, because we can really engage with audiences outside of USC, and it's not just through our own um, our own kind of content management system that USC hosts here, right, we're also kind of harvested out through South Carolina Digital Library, which is in turn harvested through the National Digital Library of America. So all of these things are searchable beyond and in different portals than just these things here. Um, I'm not going to talk for too much longer about kind of archives in general. I could go on for a while. If anybody wants to talk archives, come find me later. We can do that. but I, but I do want to say that that this project has been very satisfying um, for me, and I think I can probably speak for my USC colleagues too. Because um, as a large state flagship university, it's very nice when we can partner with institutions like the Sumter County Museum to really kind of leverage some of the the resources and capacity we have to um, to make their collections more discoverable as well. This is a collection that's held by the Sumter County Museum, and um, thanks to the, the um, resources that came through the various grants that Dr. Elfenbein was able to get, but also you know, USC's faculties and, and experts here kind of working. Um, it's been a really great partnership. I hope it's something we do more of. Um, I'm going to let Stevie talk for a while now, or I don't know how long he's going to talk. It may not be for a while, but he'll, he'll tell you kind of more of the nuts and bolts of what he's been doing on this project. Um,
4: Yeah.
5: (laughs) Okay, awesome. Um, Hello, as many of you know, I'm Stevie Malinowski. Uh, I'm the guy who's actually gone through these many uh, boxes we have here. So my plan right now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we've done here and how we do it. Then we're going to talk broad strokes of what we have here um as many of you have seen again we have a lot of stuff here so talking you know very specific wouldn't exactly work would be here all day so um start off um we went through a few stages in this progr- in this process um first we started by reading um just about everything here to see what we have um it got dry at times, uh, you know you can only read the same 1920s tax returns for so many times before it starts it starts to get old, um, but that helped us get a good idea of what needed to be digitized versus what we could skip over we 're not going to digitize everything here, such as um, like the box of letterheads over there. you know we don 't need to digitize forty copies of the exact same letterhead, so that gave us a good sense on what we had. Um, we did some reorganization. Um, There's actually two collections here, in a weird way. Um, We have the O.L. Williams collection. It's scattered to the winds right now. But we have the O.L. Williams collection, which encompasses, like, stuff pre-Williams Furniture Company. And then we have the Williams Furniture Company collection, which is, you know, post, roughly, 1931, 1932. Um, We did some cleaning and rehousing. That bottom picture up there is what my desk has looked like for, like, the last week at the end of the day um, a lot of this has not been cared for in a few years so we have to remove paper clips remove staples it's going to rot the paper um, we have to switch over some of the folders a lot of stuff um, there's boxes here that were completely unprocessed so we had to do some reorganization we had to make sure they found their home in places that made sense so a little bit of cleaning up to do before we ever got into digitizing um when we did get into digitizing these are the machines we used uh the two on the left are what we primarily used the one on the right i think i only ended up using once but it's so cool so i figured i might as well throw it in here to show you guys kind of the whole scheme of what's going on um the one on the left good luck looking it up it's called the zoichel um it's this massive overhead scanner we use it for oversized materials so something like a large map or one of these big, thick books right here. They don't fit in a regular scanner, so we have to use something oversized to do it. Um, That thing on the right there is just a normal flatbed scanner. That's where we put most of the stuff through. Sits on a desk, you just slide something into it, close the top, scan's done. And then this thing here is, again, I only used it once, but it's a Cadenas. It's very neat. It's like two cameras strapped at either side where it takes pictures of books. I just think it's like the coolest thing ever, so wanted to let you guys see it. But... Um, yeah, so we have to choose which of these things is going to suit the needs of the documents that we have. We have a lot of documents of varying sizes, materials, colors, um, photo negatives, photo positives, total insane amount of things here. So we can't just use one object, or we can't just use one technology. Um, this is what we do next after we are done actually physically scanning it. This is called metadata. Um, Some of you guys across different disciplines have probably interacted with metadata before. I don't know my business students, but you probably have a good idea of what this is. Um, It basically is just large amounts of data. Um, This is how we make sure that you are able to find what we scan. So we put in the title, we add the date, we add anyone who contributed to the making of the object. um, Length, any sort of thing that's going to help in your search for these objects goes here and it looks very overwhelming, but this is what gets turned into this, which is what you see on the library's website. It obviously gets all neatened out, and that next to it is what a traditional scan looks like. So how many of you have looked at the library's website? You're gonna be used to this. This is produced by those scanners we went through. Um, So then going into kind of what we have um, to start with, we have things like the company's operations behind the scenes stuff. This is the vast majority of what we have in the collection. I have some objects that I'm going to show along the way. Um, We have company operations like this from, like, really early on, these big, huge ledgers that contain a variety of materials in them. We also have stuff like this. We talked about this in class yesterday. Um, This is the sale to uh, Georgia Pacific. So if anyone wants to go through that and find the handshake agreement of you'll operate the the plant for 15 years, uh, be my guest. So we have a lot of these up here. We have their marketing material that shows exactly how they want you to market the furniture. There's like timber deeds and showing exactly the acreage and footage of the amount of timber that they have on hand throughout their entire time. Um, talking more about the timber and the lumber. We talked about different things there. Um, We have a lot of pictures of what the lumber operations looked like. Uh, We have land plats showing where the timber is physically located. And then to go back to the company operations, we have stuff where they're estimating, like, oh, we want to buy this bit of land. Um, You know, How much is on it? Uh, We have stuff like that, I believe, right here. Um, This is a traditional, with about a billion dollars of postage on it. Uh, Like title to real estate, we have a lot of deeds in here. There's whole boxes filled with about 200 land deeds, all of which encompass different land sales that they're making. Um, they bought a lot of land. I think as we said in class, this was kind of his vice. So we have a ton of these if you're interested. Um, talking more about the land, um, there's a lot in how they use the land that we have, namely in that map there being, uh, the location of the factories. So you can get a good sense on what Sumter was set up like. You've already been there, so you have a good sense of it, I trust. Um, that newspaper clipping there, this is, we have a lot of these talking about how they're using the forest, their impacts on it, who's being sold to, Um, Talking more about the land, we have stuff like this as well. Let me pull it out. Um, It's kind of weird at first why this matters. Um, It's an insurance policy to their entire crop of timber. Um, It unfolds very large. I don't know if anyone knows Lloyd's of London, but they insure large, large, large uh, objects. So you can kind of get a sense... If they're insuring, I forget exactly the famous thing they insured. I believe they insured Love Canal for all my history people out there, environmental, environmental people. You can get a sense of the scale that Williams was operating on their timber. Um, going off timber, we have stuff on the equipment that they were using. Um, I believe we talked about this yesterday in that a lot of the sales of Williams involve access to equipment. We have so many pictures, so many pictures of old old equipment they were using, materials, guys using them, manuals on how to use them, um, people breaking down their jobs and saying, oh, I use this piece every day, I don't use this one as much. If you're interested in the technology, we have so much on it. Uh, To the people who used the technology, uh, we have a good amount on workers. As I mentioned yesterday, uh, this is a management-centered collection, so... We don't have as much on workers as we would probably like. There are still some really neat things in here. Like in series 16 over here, we have some really cool documents that they were workers were printing, and they were showing exactly like what they were doing in their free time, what company life was like, how workers interacted with each other. So we do get some good glimpses as to what worker life was. We also have some pictures... Um, these are two of them. There are a lot more on the actual faces that we know, and like the workforce themselves. Um, as Dr. Alfmine talked about, it is an integrated workspace. It is overwhelmingly black, and this is reflected in all the pictures. Whenever we have, um, whenever we have, you know, 35-year awards, 30-year awards, even 40-year awards, it's overwhelmingly black workers. So again, pretty unique for the South. Going off of workers, uh, we have a lot of the labor stuff. Um, that on the right is one of about 10 to 15 photos that we have, which are containing or centered around strikes in 1974. Um, we also have stuff like that in the middle, which is the contracts that workers were making with Williams. Um, when strikes did happen, I think I mentioned this yesterday, um, important people from around America would come and help protest with Williams. Um, I don't know if you guys recognize the name in the middle of Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife. So there are big national faces showing up in Williams. Um, To going off of ideas of labor, this is the thing that I've spent the most time with that I find uh, very interesting is the marketing concepts. Um, We mentioned this in class that Williams was kind of big for doing these like innovative marketing ideas and a few of you guys found the magazine over here that had the huge pullout color photos. It just was so advanced compared to everything else in the magazine. These are the brochures we have that show how they're marketing their objects. They got famous for doing house-like settings where the rest of the industry was not at that yet. It feels common today. This was really advanced for the time. So that photograph shows a traditional Williams sales room. They always had, or not always, but majority of the time had it set up to look like houses with different themes. Very Western themes were common. Um, That uh, blueprint for your oak house brochure on the on the right. Almost got my hands mixed up. That shows exactly to a salesman how they want um, how they want their showroom set up. Shows to magazine companies what their ads are going to look like. It's a really really good source for showing like um, how Williams is physically marketing their materials. Um, going off of that, oop, Going off of that, more are these brochures. We have again so much on the actual furniture. Um, A few of you guys saw these earlier, but I'll bring them out for everyone. We have these large format, oh, this is a, ooh, we have a quad quad document here. These large format kind of like test photos of the actual furniture itself, so you can see the furniture. Um, This is made before they went to the brochures. When Furniture did make the brochures, we had color photographs, we had these really interesting brochures like this one, which I believe if I flip to the right page, you can kind of see this weird design, how the pages get smaller and smaller, and they're all color photographs with these really interesting drawings of the furniture, um, full page ads. It's really awesome in terms of the brochures that we have. Um, looking at the brochures, they have really interesting themes. If anyone here is interested in studying, like, uh, again, studying the marketing of these things, um, they market them in these really like masculine pro-America ways, you know, um, up here we have a fireside recalling, you know, old ideas of mom, pa around the fire, the Apollo catalog for the Apollo missions, forefathers for the founding of America that was for the bicentennial, and then kind of old world European ideas, La Mancha, Um, which is marketed for vikings which was a really odd way to sell furniture in the italian casuals you know your renaissance living in in rural south carolina this is what the inside of them looked like again if you guys saw this um again full page color ads absolutely gorgeous bright photos you can see why they were such a successful company when you look at their marketing it's just a cut above other companies um that one on the right or left as well this village square piece this is probably their most notable line it's designed by charles horton it's on price is right for a few seasons in a row it's very popular it's like setting the tone in terms of like a colonial america styling in this period we have a good amount on village square stuff um they also have these tiny little pamphlets i think we showed a few of these in class so i'm gonna go over these quickly um this is again same ideas as published in the actual sales catalogs but kind of dialed down to these tight, punchy little locations. We have tons of these, Once for every single furniture line that they had practically. Again, same idea, color photographs, very interesting marketing concepts. Um, Unique descriptions. I don't know if you can see the one up there, the Adventure Series. Um, One of the taglines for it was sold with a real treasure chest. So young boys could feel like pirates. Uh, They sell it by these pirates like venturing off the ship, like sword in hand, ready to go. Again, same idea of like the Vikings. It's like, dude, you're selling bedroom furniture. Let's tone it down. (laughs) Like, what is this? Uh, Last thing I want to talk about that we have a lot of is the Georgia Pacific relationship. Uh, We have about a whole box on Georgia Pacific's time with the company, what their ownership entailed. Um, It's a really interesting relationship. Uh, I really, really want someone to study this. Uh, They have a lot of stuff like this. This is a letter sent to every single Georgia Pacific subsidiary, Williams being one of them where it appears that they're, you know, really pushing, you know, we want this company to behave in this manner. Oh, we want to send you this brochure that talks about we need to open up the Redwoods for pulp paper cutting. It's very heavy-handed in their management of Williams. There's some interaction between them that we have, a correspondence between them that we have, where you can tell that Georgia Pacific is mad at Williams for going about things a different way than their other suppliers, where they go, hey... Why are you using our competitor's varnish? Like, do we have a problem here? And it's really towing the line in terms of business speak And in, into, like, are you, do you want to fight right now? Really interesting material. Um, so think about what we've looked at here. Think about the stories that exist. There are a lot of them. Um, and, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Lynn Robertson, and she's going to talk more about what we do with these big stories, what stories we have. So yeah, thank you.
6: Thanks, Stevie. Of course. Well, as you can see, there's a lot of stuff, <laughs> and uh, the end point of this class is, since all of you signed up for it, as you all know, is to come up with an exhibition. You know, um, I think we're all kind of surprised at what we found during uh, during the class so far. These are stories you know, that I knew nothing about, certainly. So I like to think that a good exhibition does two things. The first thing is that it gives people information about something they probably didn't know about. That's kind of where we all are right here at this point. And a good exhibition also gets people to think and feel differently about the subject that they've learned about. And that's always a much more... Settle things. So why don't we why don't we start with the beginning and that all of this information you've had from Dr. Elfenbein and the information that Stevie's given to us and I think one of the things that we found in this course is because this is kind of a secret history, as Ed Harris points out, that we have to use unconventional resources. This isn't a kind of do it quick, read uh, three big books, and we can do this exhibition. We're going to have to learn to use the archival materials, and we'll talk a little bit later in the class about uh, doing oral histories of people who are actually there to get the other side of the management story. But what are some of the things, what are some, if you wanted... To put this all together, say, as chapters of a book, what would, what do you think are the important parts of this story that people wouldn't know about, that they would walk through this exhibition, which is going to be, because we have so few big objects, it's going to be primarily as what we call in the business a panel exhibition. What, what are the stories you want to tell that people don't know about, that they can go, Oh wow that's really cool and how do you how do you think that we can tell this story so they think this was really important? Gee, I'm really sorry I didn't know about that. so now comes the interactive part that uh, that I'm up here, but you're giving me the answers. So some of you come on I
7: think something that's important to be able to convey through the panels is that there is <laughs> That there was a furniture industry in South Carolina. Um, I uh-huh. think a lot of people, especially people who might not be from Columbia or Sumter or just inland South Carolina in general, are not as aware of how big the industry was. Uh, yeah making sure that people are aware of how many lives it touched, how much uh, it impacted the local economy, how much development it drove, things like that. Those are things that are very important to convey throughout
6: the exhibition. Right. So, so what you're saying is maybe the scope, the, that it existed, but it was more than just three chairs and a bed, that the, the scope of it, that it had economic impact. What are some of the other things you think we ought to talk about? Also. Yes. You yeah, have to.
8: Um, I feel like a really good way to end the exhibition might be like bringing it into like modern day. Like what you told us, I think, on like the first day of class was like Williams Bryce Stadium. Like the Williams comes from Williams Furniture Company. And that's kind of what like sparked my interest in this topic in general. Cause I'm not really like, I've never, like, I've never been interested in the lumber industry at all. But, you know, <laughs> um, being a, a student in the University of South Carolina, obviously I love Williams Bryce Stadium. So kind of bringing in that connection. Like, obviously this was in like, it had a
6: lasting forward, impact. Right, but, but it's a
8: lasting impact, and we see it today on campus. It, it affects all of us. We just haven't been,
6: you know, like, told or... Well, it was funny. Like, I had lunch nowhere. today with an old friend who used to be in the legal office here, and she asked me what I was doing, and I said, she thought, and she said, connection to the, to the football stadium. And I said, yeah, and it's also the School of Nursing is, is, is a beneficiary for the, for the Williams, uh, Williams Company. So, so what else? So we want to tell people that there was a company in Sumter, South Carolina that was very large and had a dramatic economic impact on the state and the city. But what else? What else? What, what about let's go all the way back to the beginning. What, what about the trees? What about Bidler and Ferguson and things like that? Wait, wait.
4: <laughs> I mean, I know what we uh, primarily talked about in Congaree was just uh, the enormity of these old cypress uh, forests in the state of south carolina mm-hmm. and how uh these you know corporations from chicago came down and started this enormous industry that employed thousands of people but also decimated a native environment and uh this old backcountry of south carolina was just swept away uh now reduced to about 15 trees on a stretch of you know 30 yeah. foot um so just the environmental impact too if we're talking right. about the the scope also the environmental impact
6: yeah, well, just before we started, you were looking at one of the journals that talked about what?
4: Um, oh, the, the shipment of yeah. wood uh, from up north as well and imported wood.
6: Right. Mm-hmm. And it was the, the types of wood and yes. how much was coming in, well, which I'm gives sure. us, that's another way of using archival resources to kind of get an idea about what were they making and what were they making it of? And what's, what's maybe another thing we want to talk about in addition to what were they making in, I thought, Carrie? I
9: thought it was
8: interesting in the more recent readings how they are able to cut back on like the types of materials they're using to make it kind of cheaper and cater more to the everyday citizen. Because mm-hmm. we talked about it at first, it was very expensive and then they started making it out of other materials and able to cut costs and like really drive up their margins.
6: Right, and what, what, what was maybe the impact of uh, when we talked about the depression? And that kind of plays into a little bit about what you're saying, right? Okay, so we still got, we've got what they were making, how big they were, what they were making it out of. For us. Ah, very good. <laughs>
7: we'll have the oral histories, so just kind of sharing... I, you know, it, it's probably limited as to who we're able to talk to, but as the company evolved over the course of its 50-some years, what they were making, how they were making it, um, the unionization aspect, uh, the integrated workforce, things that really didn't exist in South Carolina in the 20th century, mm-hmm. the union aspect especially, still doesn't really exist now. So, um, telling the stories of the people as kind of the way to tell the story of everything else.
6: What what was one of the things that Dr. Elfenbein mentioned that's kind of in the news today that uh, was unusual for South Carolina when Williams was operating? Yeah. (laughs) The strikes in the unions. Right. And
7: uh, the history about, like, organized labor. That didn't happen so much in the South, especially in South Carolina, for it to come to be in such a rural uh, location like Sumter.
6: Yeah, no, exactly. And that's one of the things that, you know, Stevie talked about that was in the documents uh, here was in terms of what management was very, very conscious about what was going on in terms of workers and strikes. And, of course, they have. A particular viewpoint, which as historians, as we put the exhibition together, we have to think about whose, you know, whose voice and, and, and sometimes more questions than answers come apart when you're, you know, reading documents and doing things like that. So, okay, so we've been talking about giving people new information that South Carolina had an incredible number of trees after the Civil War. Um, they were important for the economy. They had been a, important for the economy for a long time, but we hit reconstruction, the devaluation of the land, and people in Chicago going, oh, they got big trees down there, and we don't have any trees left here anymore. So, you know, the connection of that and the growth of, of, of what becomes this very large and mostly now forgotten forgotten company in, in Sumter. So, okay, we're going to talk about trees, and cutting trees, and making things out of trees, and who makes the things? The Williams, and what were, were they were the only plate people, and what, what have we learned about other things that are going on now? Oh, sorry, I should have. <laughs>
4: I guess the um, next step and next who makes the things would be, uh, you know, after Reconstruction and the Depression, your next step would probably be globalization and uh, the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. while the mill towns were going down and what happened to Sumter as well. Because even just pictures of uh, the current site today would be a powerful uh, con- contribution to the exhibit, uh, exhibition. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we put up uh, pictures of Ferguson and the drowned, you know, brick walls sticking right. over the water. But I think the uh, crumbled and charred remains of Williams are a stark contrast to what uh, the aerial photo showed.
6: Yeah. So. And what, we, what what? about, were there other companies in Sumter? Or were they the only one? And I think some of you? Come on. <laughs>
9: uh, sure. uh, there was also a Brooklyn Cooperage Bridge, which made barrels. Uh-huh. Oh, um, the chair, or the cabinets,
6: Sumter cabinets. the Sumter cabinet company yeah. which when we go out you know when we're putting the exhibition together it's going to be primarily panels but we're also going to try to find those you know big bulky objects that these people were making and that's probably what we're going to be able to find the most of is is the furniture because they stamped their furniture and it says Sumter cabinet on it but uh but we'll look for some some things from Williams's as, as well so okay we're kind of trying to tell this story we're kind of putting it in a in a way a, a kind of a, a linear progression of the war after the war yeah.
9: I asked something jumping back before that, actually, because um, the way that Williams got started in Sumter was also a unique economic development initiative by local boosters and people who looked around and said, we need to have industry here that's not just agriculture much to the scoffing of people like that report we read from a USC office that said, all Sumter can do is agriculture. <laughs> These guys were like, no, we need to bring in manufacturing because that's the future. And so they you know, had a community invested effort with stockholders to recruit this company to start manufacturing in Sumter. And so that's a unique part of the story as well as the, you know, the economic development efforts and recruitment. And we can still see you know, that kind of economic development happening today with the way that the state
6: recruits companies to move here. Exactly. So, okay, so we talked a, bit, a lot about how we tell this story, the part that is getting people to know something they didn't know about. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know about that. I thought there were only textile mills in South Carolina. Or. But what about the other story, the story that's really the most important part of that? And that is, when someone walks out of an exhibition, your goal is to get them to think about something differently or to feel differently about it. And what are some of the things we've talked about that, that you think will make an, an emotional or an intellectual impact that people will say, oh, that's a carryover? You had an idea. Yeah. Um,
7: I mean, obviously, it's... From all the stuff we've pointed out, that I feel like it's an obvious point, but just the fact that all of this was spurred out of Sumter, South Carolina, a town of thirty thousand now, and not one of the towns like Charleston or Columbia, mm-hmm. is kind of like a perspective-changing thing coming out of the exhibition. Like you'd think that all this growth in post Civil uh, post Civil War would have come out of one of the bigger towns in South Carolina. But right.
6: It's so, what was what was what was happening? in the environment, in the natural environment that plays into this story that we, we talked about?
1: We talked about how, like, the boll weevil came through, and I think in one of the reports it said, like, 50 percent of the cotton had been, like, wiped out mm-hmm. of Sumter, and so they were kind of losing a lot of their economic, like, upward movement, and so they had to find something else. They were like, hey, you know what we have a lot of is trees, and so they were, like, trying to figure out how they could use all that, and yeah. Kind of moved them in a different path to where they were still heavily focused on agriculture, even still cotton, but now they also had like another outlet to make their money off.
6: Of. Okay, so what's, what's, if you get, we tell people that part of the story, that this is a natural occurrence, this is a cha- natural ca- challenge, a natural disaster. What are some ways that maybe we can get the, Get the audience to make a connection between their lives today. What else? Is, what's going on in the world in terms of of people trying to adapt to natural disasters? <laughs> Nash,
4: I um, know it was pretty inevitable, but I do remem- uh, remember that we just kind of name dropped uh, COVID in there. Yeah. About uh, And it came up in our discussion at Sumter as well, I believe, with the uh, Chamber of Commerce or the, or the Council of Commerce about um, how COVID uh, and our current industrial world is changing Sumter again uh, about, you know, work mm-hmm. from home uh, and other labor movements in the South being mm-hmm. affected. Um, and also, I think we talked about uh, some of the industries that came into Charleston uh, and then you have BMW in Greenville and quite a few other things that are kind of echoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evolution of williams and sumter so
6: yeah so that's a really good point i think
8: one other thing we touched on was moving some of the manufacturing back inland given some of the supply chain issues that have surfaced in Mm -hmm. recent years and so i think that's a promising aspect that we can really sell on um for sumter who is really trying to stimulate their economy organically
6: So their, their natural disaster isn't climate change. Their natural disaster is a weird little bug with poppy eyes and a big beak. But the way in which a community says, Oh, maybe this isn't going to work anymore. Let's have an innovative, something that's a really different decision. Let's, let's, let's look at retooling what we do instead of doing the same old thing the same way. I know when we read Ed Ayers, he was talking about how, you know, there was a lot of resistance in the South following the Civil War in terms of we've had a very rich economy based on agriculture. Why change? We're going to have the plantation system and about, you know, the evolution of that. And I think, you know, one of the stories I think we need to tell is how imaginative and innovative these guys were, that they, you know, instead of just one person... Opening up Williams furniture that they go out, they sell shares. Um, those are your finance <laughs> majors. You know, they looked at a, they looked at a new way of putting together the resources they needed. They got four people within the community to buy shares and, and, and put up the resources that they need. And maybe that's a lesson. Maybe we want people to walk out of the exhibition and say, wow when the chips were down, they thought of a new way of doing things. Maybe, maybe that's, you know, that's a challenge for us. Maybe we need to think about new ways of, of doing things. What are some of the other kind of takeaways in terms of that people would say that there's a relationship to what's going on? We mentioned, um, it was already mentioned before in terms of the labor movement and the resurgence of the labor movement in the United States right now. Um, natural disasters. What are they making out of trees today? Not furniture but we talked about most of the trees in South Carolina are being turned into paper pulp now um, and that, that it is still, I, there was a t- statistic on National Public Radio that South Carolina cuts more timber on a you know per square foot basis than um than is being cut in the uh, Brazilian rainforest that we we are still one of the major producers in the United States of timber, but most of it is is what kind of timber pine and it's being used for paper products, and what 's different from the way they're doing They're they 're using timber. Today, in terms of pine, from what they were doing in terms of earlier cutting all that cypress for uh, for, um, architectural detailing, big. Well, have to. Okay.
9: Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> I didn't even see it. Uh, one thing they're doing is they're replanting the pine afterwards, and so it's more of a crop where you plant it, and it's a 20-year cycle. You harvest it, and then you can replant it. And so you're able to have your tracts of land and kind of rotate you know, which pine you're harvesting. So it's a lot more sustainable than the cypress harvesting which is just taking these trees that are like hundreds of years old and whacking them down and like they take so long to grow back that it's not really a crop that grows like pine where you can do that so they're doing it more in a way where you're reforesting as you're cutting timber
6: Right. So it's the whole idea that it's a crop like wheat or cotton or, or, um, corn or various other things. It just takes a little, it takes 10 years to grow the bindery and not, not other things. So, okay. We, we've, we've got renewable resources that come out of the story we're trying to tell. We, we're talking about maybe inventive ways of dealing with, with climate change or other things that are going on. Jason.
7: Our first conversation that we had is how does any of this impact us? Yes. Um, you know, I think making that connection for the people that will come to the exhibition, uh, I'm sure. I mean, most of us came in and didn't really see the connection between what was happening in the timber industry here versus our own lives. Um, so <laughs> being able to use the people, use what was happening as a way to, I don't know, just kind of tell that story in a way that, they see the reflections in their own life, as opposed to just, oh, this is something interesting to right. learn about. This is something that, no, affects me every single day. Like it's something that I use. It's something that is that's a good point. Relevant, yeah.
6: Yeah, and I, you know, what we went out to. Uh, we went out to Congaree Park and we looked at the cypress trees and we looked at one particular downed one. And I think, you know, what was. How did you kind of, you know, what was your response to that? What, what, you know, to me, this, you know, the, just the size of, of what you're dealing with, it's, it was, was quite impressive. And you said that's, you know, part of, of what, how is its relationship to me? So what, what are, what are your questions after we've, you know talked a lot about in this course about the content what are what are the questions you have if you walked into to an exhibit this exhibition what you know what was what would be your be your, your question
5: Come
1: on.
7: yeah i was just you know wondering you know it's history cyclical yeah you know so post reconstruction the south was wondering what do we do now agriculture is not the option now post-globalization Williams is closed. Those other factories are closed. Part of the exhibition could be, what do we do now? Again, where right. do we go from here?
6: What businesses do we attract? How do we get them here? That's a very good point. How do we yeah. feed people, give them jobs? Yeah. The, you know, kind of flip it on. What is, this, what is the lesson we learn that we can take away today? Which is, I think, you know, as I said, I think it's an important part of an exhibition. We learned something new we didn't know about. It's really cool. Um, One of the things that interests me is uh, Stevie showed you all of these images of the furniture that was being made. Why did it look the way it looked? How was that, you know, showing what America and styles and philosophies were? What was the social life of of that particular time? So... So, 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 Stevie, we were talking about these things here. You've looked at the, you've looked at the of uh, out all of this material. What what would be your thoughts in terms of as we de- develop the exhibition? <laughs> that's,
5: that's a really big question because uh, there's so much that we have. Um,
6: so you've got to boil it all down. This is this is not the, uh, you know. The uh, mini-series of uh, six episodes of two hours each. So what, what, what did you find, first of all, that you didn't know? And second of all, what did you find that was either emotionally or, or just made you think about things differently? I mean, like,
5: A, the thing I found that I didn't know was just how a company like this operates. Like, I feel, I feel confident now I could run my own furniture company <laughs> like, i can start a fortune 500 company now so like there's that but i think in terms of a um like an exhibit i think the most important thing especially for you guys since you all come from different backgrounds is that um like what i went over up there it's so varied there's so much if you're a business person we have so much of the business if you're in you know a more artsy person we have so much of like how they are drawing the furniture, and how they are marketing it. You know, if you're an environmental, environmental person, we have the environmental impacts of all this stuff. I think the most important thing you guys need to do is follow what interests you and what your personal background is. Because no matter what, like, what you're passionate about is going to become the best product. Don't chase something that you're not passionate about when it comes to this. We have something for all of you up here. If we all contribute something that you're really into and that you absolutely love the exhibit will be awesome. So, good, yeah. Good,
6: good, very good advice. And also, follow the, follow the questions you have. You know, why did they do that? What happened? You know, why did they go out of business? Why did they sell to, to a different company? You know?
2: wonderful. If you guys could just sort of brainstorm, you're not committed to any ideas you might have at this moment, but at this very moment, what most interests you, kind of piggybacking on what stevie suggested what what has interested you so far what might you like to pursue
6: challenge everybody who hasn't said anything so far in the class you have to come up with an answer
8: um, one of the most recent readings we did, uh, there was a section that was really, really interesting to me about like the addition of women into the workplace, especially in these factories that were very male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just like a section of the reading where it was about like balancing the concept of like being a housewife, but also like wanting to pursue working a real job, um, which I found really interesting, especially during this entire time period that was just a struggle that women were having in general. But just like through the lens of, you know, Sumter, South Carolina, a very a place that's you yeah. know. Not the most historically kind to minorities, but, you know, just like that kind of struggle and, and how it played out specifically in this company.
6: And I think kind of related to that, you can sense in um, looking at some of the advertising, they, they they take on this sense that who they're really selling this stuff to is women. It's women who make the choice of, of Yes. Yeah sets because i think what was mentioned a lot was that it
8: was like very like american dream like hunting and fishing and you know (laughs) all this stuff that's geared towards like little boys and men i think there was like when i was looking through that little um magazine catalog that was like there was a lot of advertising that i was really like drawn to like because i'm a visual communications major so like Mm -hmm. that's what i do is like marketing so i was like really interested in seeing all of the ways that they would like gear furniture towards women and, like, having, like, rocking chairs with women holding their children and stuff like that, yeah. it really resonates with women versus, you know, like, the guns and, like, fishes and <laughs> the, like, uh, horns on the walls and stuff like that.
6: It took them a while to figure out that right. women were buying yeah. the furniture, yeah, exactly. not guys. <laughs> guys wrote the check, but women were buying the, <laughs> the furniture. The went shopping. Okay, who else has shop. a passion? It's something that just really piqued their interest in, in what we've been doing. Well,
7: <laughs> um, one of the things that piqued my interest was how local city managers, local business owners, <clears throat> local courts, kind of approached the changing industry in the South following post-reconstruction. Because agriculture, they they saw that you know from the bull weevil, from new industrial, uh, from mining, from different industries, agriculture was slowly losing its hold on the south and and how the law began to treat these new industries like iron like furniture like lumber I thought was very interesting yeah
6: that's very cute any others I feel like
1: um I feel like I'm enjoying just like learning the biographies of like the people who started it like I found some stuff on O.L. Williams in one Mm -hmm. of the boxes and then we read about like Buxton and then J.B. 3, who isn't in, in these boxes, but mm-hmm. was in another reading we did. And I feel like I'm enjoying the personal aspect of, like, looking at each of the people, I mean, like, why are they here? Like, why did they choose to do this? Like, I think it was Buxton came down from North Carolina. Yeah. So why did he choose to go here and not up to, um, like, up to Michigan or Wisconsin or where yeah. that, like, furniture empire yeah. was happening? What is the role of the charismatic Like, what leader, were they doing? And know, then also, like, how did, itself, how they the felt idea. about their business, like, affect the people and like is like did their personalities affect why they unionized or was it like the big personalities made them feel better about how they were working like that's that's just something that interests me
6: one of the to kind of close with one of the things that i think is interesting we talked a little bit about williams and at one time how vaughn bassett buys williams when it's when it's been sold to several other people and it's kind of on the way down Um, But if you get on the website for um, Vaughn Bassett, which is still manufacturing in North Carolina, they don't manufacture here in Sumter anymore, and you look at what they're telling you about the furniture industry today. It's a renewable resource. They plant a tree for every tree they cut to use in their furniture. It's a stable workforce that pays good wages. Um, and uh, is is diverse, and that people work for them for a long time. They may, it's American-made, solid wood furniture will last many, you know, several lifetimes. So it's kind of like, you know, we, we, we've talked about this company that, you know, starts in the 20s and sells, I think, in 1967, but we recycle. As you had mentioned, it's this cyclical thing in terms of, we're going back to selling American, buy American, stable workforce. You know, we're we're we are carbon neutral. Um, all the all the ways in which today is influencing a very old and traditional way. So we'll all look forward to the next uh, next few sessions where we start putting together actually uh, what this uh, exhibition that we're going to do looks like, and so. Thank you
2: all.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to Lectures in History. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books that Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.